Romans chapter 1, Romans 1 is where we will start uh, this time of our study. That's an awesome song. I love the, uh, the phrase as we sang it, uh, the, the treasures of the trial, uh, the, the things that are difficult but that we gain uh, through going through adversity and hardship, and it's a beautiful thought. I'm, I'm also impressed by Drew. Uh, Drew could barely talk a minute ago, and he gets up and belts those songs out. I'm impressed. I wish I could, I wish I could sing that good when my, uh, my voice is good, much less when I'm... Uh, uh, not feeling well as he's not, so appreciate him and his work. Romans chapter 1, what we're doing this morning is uh, our Q&A morning, and uh, I, last month I was gone during this Sunday, and uh, Zach was able to do the q and appreciate him doing that, uh, but uh, somebody asked me, are these the easy questions that you gave Zach? And I just, there are no easy questions. I found that again this week. I have two questions. I don't know exactly how long they're going to take, but I was, th- I was searching for a third a short, easy question, and you guys have given me none. I have no short, easy questions, so if we get done early, we just get done early because I'm not going to open up something new that I can't finish. Uh, For those who are visitors with us or you're new, uh, just so you know what we're doing, uh, the second Sunday morning of each month in this hour, we take time to answer questions. Now, it's questions that have been previously submitted so that I can have some time to think about and look through the passages that would relate to that and try to find a a good answer. And uh, so in some ways, these are going to be Bible questions, and in some ways, they're going to be questions that show how the Bible interfaces with our lives. And so some of them are going to have some element of judgment to them. It's okay if you disagree with my judgment. I don't have a problem with that. In fact, sometimes you're going to think I have no judgment, and that's okay. But uh, I, I'm the one who's doing the answering, so I have to tell you what I think. Uh, but I'm not just going to try to tell you this is what I think about this. So uh, we have two questions this morning that we're going to try to, to look at. Uh, the first question is this. Uh, how should Christians handle addressing homosexual spouses or people with gender dysphoria? That's the question. I need to explain a little bit some, some of the context of the question because uh, when I receive the question, it's a lot more than I want to put on the board here. Uh, but it's a question that comes from a business context where you as an employee may be dealing with someone as a customer, and so you have the pressure as an employee of what your employer wants you to do with that customer, and then the customer may be someone who is a homosexual who's married or someone with gender dysphoria who identifies as a different gender than what they appear to be, and they want you to address them uh, by the gender that they, uh, they have chosen. And so this is a request for advice. How do I handle that situation? How should I uh, deal with or address people like that? And it seems to me, though, as I I was thinking about the question, it's a a really tough question on the one hand, but it seemed to me that it's sort of a broader question about how do Christians deal with some of the changes that we've seen just in the last few years in terms of our culture regarding these two issues where homosexual marriage has now been backed by the Supreme Court. That's a reality in our nation. How do we deal with that? How do we engage with people who are married homosexuals? And then also uh, this idea of gender dysphoria, which we'll talk about a little more what that means, but the the difference between uh, someone's observable sex and their gender, the the identity they they have chosen uh, and they want to be addressed by. So Uh, Let's start with just the idea, what does the Bible teach about homosexuality? That's why we're in Romans chapter 1. So I just want to read here Romans 1, beginning in verse 24. This is the 
we're jumping in the middle of how Paul describes the descent of the Gentiles. And in verse 24, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. He goes into this long list, verse 29 to 31, of these things that they began to do. And then verse 32 Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So there's a lot to say here uh, about the degeneration, you might say, of the Gentiles and how they they got to the awful points they did. Uh, But it begins with a lack of spiritual awareness. They did not acknowledge God as God. They were not thankful, but their, their thoughts were turned. I see it as sort of inward. And uh, they began to decide, what do we like and what do we want to do? And so they began to make their own gods. And then eventually they began to do what they wanted with their own bodies. And God gave them up to a debased mind to do all manner of evil. Now you have homosexual activity specifically condemned here. I think you see that in verse 26 and 27. uh, The idea of exchanging the natural use to what's contrary to nature. And uh, men consumed with passion for other men and that kind of thing. Now, I think it's important to say homosexuality is an ancient reality. This is not new. And uh, while it may feel new because our culture has shifted with its stance regarding it, it's a very old issue. But ancient homosexuality was a lot less about committed relationships. Uh, It was just about the sexual act. And in fact, uh, very often it was not the way we view sexuality as uh, in our culture, in our time, it's said to be sort of static, okay? You are a heterosexual or you are a homosexual. In the ancient world, it was just that you were out of control sexually and the, the object of that could be anyone. So uh, it was a very different view than what we have today. But the marriage element of uh, homosexuality isn't really addressed in Scripture because that wasn't really a part of the climate of the time. So that is different uh, with regard to our common our, our modern context. There's one other piece in verse 32 that I want to pull out here. Uh, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, and we're not just talking about homosexuality here, but this whole list of things in 29 to 31, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So it mentions people not only doing those things, but also approving. So maybe not everybody is involved in every aspect of this, but the fact that they approved of it was also an issue. That is, they did not say this is wrong, you shouldn't do that, this is a bad thing. So there is a strong implication from that verse that we're not to approve of others doing evil. Okay? Even if we don't engage in the evil ourselves, that we don't approve of it. So that's sort of a grounding I want to begin with. Uh, now let's talk a little bit about this idea of gender dysphoria. Gender dysphoria is the idea that a person feels they are a different gender than their biological sex. So they're born a, a man or male, uh, but they feel like they are not male. Uh, That is not what they uh, feel they are or want to be. And the difference between their bodies and their mental state about who they identify as a gender just causes them a great deal of distress. Uh, So 
there are a couple of factors that are complicating when it comes to people who are, have gender dysphoria or who are called transgender, uh, meaning sort of between genders. Uh, so one of those complicating factors is that there is, as you probably know, a broad movement afoot to legitimize this kind of thinking and say that we need to identify people and address them by the gender they choose and they identify with, even if it's different from their sex. And of course, that's a broad movement in our society. And there is an issue with that because we struggle as a society to address people in a way that's different from what they appear to be. Okay, that's, a, that's an issue and that's difficult. Uh, and so that's a pressure though that as the question indicates, moves into the workplace. So here is an employer, he does not want to offend or upset customers, right? Okay, so he's concerned about if we don't call people what they want to be called, then they're going to get mad, perhaps they'll sue us, it can become a problem. And so the employer wants the customer happy and puts pressure on the employee who's going to interface with the customer and says, let's be sure and do whatever those people would like for you to do. So that's one complicating factor. Uh, the other concern about gender dysphoria is uh, legitimizing that kind of thinking. You know, if I call someone what they tell me they want to be called, am I giving approval to that? Am I agreeing that gender is a fluid construct and it's different from sex and that kind of thing uh, and that we can just choose the gender we want to identify with? So I've said a lot of things. I haven't answered the question, have I? So how should Christians handle addressing homosexual spouses? So for example, in a customer situation, someone begins to talk about, a man begins to talk about his husband, or a woman begins to talk about her wife, or, or we have some kind of business transaction that has to deal with that kind of situation. Uh, my take on this is that Christians should always be unfailingly polite and accommodating. Now, let me tell you why. I don't endorse someone's life choices just because I am kind to them. I am going to be kind as best as I have it in me to everyone, whether that's in a business setting or not. And I do not legitimize their relationship. This is my judgment. I do not legitimize their relationship by referring, them and referring to them in a way that they prefer. For example, I'll just give you an example that might not be quite so polarizing as these two issues. Uh, if someone has a marriage that is against God's will, and we could do a little study on this. We're not going to do it this morning, but there are marriages that are against God's will. You even see some in the Bible. It doesn't mean that I have to pretend that marriage doesn't exist. Okay, I cannot address that person as your wife because that's not a right marriage. See, the Bible condemns homosexual activity and the Bible speaks of marriage as male and female, but just because something is not biblical doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It doesn't mean it's not real, and it doesn't mean I don't still have to deal with people who might do things that God doesn't approve of. And when we deal with people who do things that God doesn't approve of, my opinion, my judgment, is that we should be unfailingly polite and accommodating. Now, I looked into this some this week, this idea of gender dysphoria, and as I looked into it more, it seemed really apparent to me that no matter what you say about people with gender dysphoria, whether you think that's a legitimate thing or whether you think that's something that's made up, whatever you may think about it, it seems to me that these people deserve our compassion because these are people who have a real issue 
and they are deeply distressed by the issue. So whether you think we should not treat them by their preferred gender or we should treat them by their preferred gender, I am saying there is a tremendous amount of psychological trouble that is caused by this. And if they're not really troubled and they're just pretending, well, that's not really my job to judge. And I'm not sure I'm equipped to judge it anyway because that would involve me reading someone's mind. Instead, it seems to me that the fact that this is a real possibility and a real situation means that my heart needs to go out to people like this. It seems to me that we need to be careful about viewing people as categories rather than unique individuals who have the same issues and moral flaws that we all do, including me. And because of that, there is room for compassion for people like that. Sinners need my compassion regardless of what the sin is. And I can relate to them even if I don't relate to the particular sin because I know what it is to be a sinner. So I'm straying a little bit from the question here, but I want to add something else. I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 9. This is Matthew 9 and verse 9. It says, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I bring this passage up and this idea of Jesus engaging with, going to eat with tax collectors and sinners, along with the Pharisees' criticism of that, because I'm a bit concerned when we have a strategy of engaging people by, quote-unquote, taking a stand taking a stand instead of getting to know a person and appealing to them with the gospel. So let me ask you a question. If someone doesn't know you and doesn't seem to care at all about who you are and what you do, but that person then approaches you and says that you are wrong with a huge part of your life, how likely are you to be to listen to them? If they don't know you or care about you or have any relationship with you, that message, you're going to laugh at it. You're going to say, you don't know me. You don't know anything about me. So it seems to me that to do that to someone else would not only be counterproductive, it might be insulting. Now, remember what Jesus did. And I want you to see this. Jesus goes out of his way. In verse 10, it says, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. You know that Jesus gained a reputation for the close relationship he had with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, he was known for that by the Pharisees in that disdainful way. He's a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This man receives sinners, Luke 15, 1. He goes into Zacchaeus' house. He knows Zacchaeus' name. And he says, I'm staying at your house today. And the people all grumble. Jesus says in Matthew 21, 
the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of heaven before you, Pharisees. Okay, Jesus went out of his way to engage people who were known to be sinners. Meanwhile, the Pharisees go out of their way to say, I want nothing to do with those people. That's a category of people I refuse to have any say in. Now, just remember that. The difference there between Jesus' mode of engagement with those who are lost and the Pharisees' mode of engagement with the lost. So it seems to me, the reason I say I'm concerned, I'm just a bit concerned when we say I'm not going to get to know anyone or talk to anyone or have a relationship with anyone who may be a sinner or who may do something I don't like or maybe even have a view I don't agree with. And we say, no, that's me taking a stand. Whereas Jesus gives us an example of compassion and outreach. Please hear me, never compromising the truth of the gospel, never saying this is okay, never approving of evil. I don't think any of us would say that's what Jesus does but showing the kindness that should be the trademark of Christians. And it appears to me this is just one example of situations where it's going to be hard for us to do that. And we're going to have to figure out how does the kindness that should characterize me and the engagement and compassion I should be feeling make it into a real-life situation. So I just think those are things to think about. Now, again, I told you in the beginning, you may disagree with me and my judgment, and that's okay. You may think I have no judgment. That's okay. But it's something I think we need to think about. So uh, my answer to this question is, with the unfailing kindness and perhaps even compassion uh, that should characterize Christians should be our trademark. All right? Let's go out of the frying pan into the fire. Should a woman or child lead a prayer on behalf of a family before a meal? All right, so that's the question. Briefly... In the beginning, I would like to say that praying before a meal, praying gratitude, is a Jesus practice and a Christian practice. I say this because I know someone very well. Don't worry, they don't go to church here. I know someone very well who is hostile to the idea of praying before a meal. He just doesn't like it and he thinks it's a ridiculous ritual to which I say, Jesus did it and Christians did it. Let me just show you a couple of passages here. Uh, this is John 6, 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. He had given thanks. This is when Jesus feeds the 5,000. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, 30. If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Okay, so he is talking about in the context of eating meat sacrificed to idols, and he is saying, this is just meat, it's just food. Why would I allow something I ate and gave thanks for to give room for others to denounce me or speak evil of me. And then 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5, this is a very interesting passage regarding the whole practice. He says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Okay, we're talking about food here. And he is saying there's no food that's off limits, which of course would be a startling thing for a Jew to say, and Paul was a Jew, but... He is saying it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. So, in other words, it's something that is sort of acceptable because we thank God for it. So, in some way, I'm not saying it changes the substance of the food or anything like that. I'm saying that the Bible is teaching us this is a practice that's appropriate. But, of course, that's not really the question. Uh, the question, the crux of the question is about who leads prayer. So, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians 11. 
Concerns about who leads a prayer center around the New Testament teaching on women and spiritual authority. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's read 1 Corinthians 11, beginning of verse 3. He says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife, that's my version, yours might say head of woman. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. Verse 4, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. So Paul envisions here both men and women praying and prophesying. And his concern here is about the head, head, meaning that's reference to spiritual authority that is set up in verse 3. The head of every man is Christ, the head of every wife or woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So there's sort of an order, or you might call it a hierarchy, of uh, spiritual authority. But he does not say here that women are not to pray. That is not the idea. Women don't pray or else you're somehow violating the uh, hierarchy of spiritual authority. Only that they should pray with respect for that. And in this text, that means a covering. And he talks a lot about that. In fact, we could go into a lot of detail about the covering. Actually, I don't know that I could. We could try to go into a lot of detail about the covering, but it's a very challenging text. As those who were in my class when I taught on it last year can attest. But you have the principle here that women praying has reference to the authority of uh, man and woman and then Christ and God. All right, let's look in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 14. Verse 34. 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 34. It says, "...the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says." If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church, or yours might say in the assembly. All right, so women should keep silent in the churches. It says there in verse 34, uh, they should be in submission. It says in verse 34, and then verse 35, if they want to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, which in other words is saying at some place or time that is not in the assembly. So usually what happens when we read this passage is we take that idea of silence and then we combine it with this. This is 1 Timothy 2, 11 and 12. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Okay, so usually we combine these two passages. They both talk about, one talks about silence, one talks about quietness, and they both talk about submission. And then we take that idea and we just say essentially that women are not to teach or be an authority over the worship service. Okay, so the idea of teaching comes from 1 Timothy 2, teaching or exercise authority over a man. So we usually take that, combine it with 1 Corinthians 14, and kind of put those things together and say, well, generally what that's saying is that women aren't to be in a leadership role in the worship service. But it is clear, if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, that the context is churches. In fact, he says that word churches. And again, I don't, you, you got to get out of our modern uh, use of the word church, and remember, they don't prob probably are not talking about a church building. We're talking about the assembly or the gathering of the people of God for worship. So, churches is the context of these two passages, and I believe also 1 Timothy 2, although it's a longer discussion, I believe 1 Timothy 2 is talking about the assembly in context as well. 
I, I believe that this idea of teaching or exercising authority and remaining quiet is something that is talking about the assembly. In other words, I don't believe that she is to remain quiet is a permanent state for all women. Always be quiet. Okay, I believe that's something that's talking about our assembly. So, what about outside the assembly? Which is really the crux of our question, right? We're talking about taking a meal. And I tend to view home life and things outside the assembly more leniently than I do the assembly, where it's clear from what we've just read that there are some expectations for how things are going to be done in the assembly, uh, that home life seems to me to be different. So look with me in Ephesians chapter 6 for a moment. Ephesians 6. I want you to notice, let's just start Ephesians 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So you have, first in verse 1, children, obey your parents. Verse 2, honor your father and mother. But then in verse 4, fathers. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what's missing there? There's nothing there about mothers. Okay, now mothers, implied in parents in verse 1, specified in verse 2, honor your father and mother, but not expressed at all in verse 4. Now I take that to mean that fathers are to be the primary spiritual leaders and influencers in the home. But does that mean mothers can't teach their children? Because he says fathers? No, I don't think that at all. I don't think any of us would say that. In fact, I know many of us would not be anywhere near where we are today had our mothers actually taken that to mean they can't teach their children. In fact, this is Proverbs 1, verses 8 and 9. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Notice this is that Hebrew parallelism. Uh, father's instruction and mother's teaching are parallel. They, they are considered the same thing. They explain one another. And so the idea is what the father teaches and what the mother teaches are, are viewed as one. Now, is the father to be the leader in that? Well, yes, I do believe that. And I believe the Old Testament teaches that as well in places like Deuteronomy chapter 6. But the idea is the wife or the mother is not somehow challenging the father. She is instead working with the father. And in fact, that father's role is not weakened by that. In fact, I believe it's strengthened because we have, we have sort of a parenting team instead of one person having to dictate everything that goes on. So I would say that all men learn a lot and have a lot to learn from women. And I do not believe that when God says that there are certain rules for the assembly, that he is saying we need to stop our ears whenever a woman is talking. We men should stop our ears lest we learn something, as if that would be dangerous. I don't believe that's what he's saying. There is a difference in saying that women are not to have a teaching role in the assembly and saying that a woman can never teach a man anything or that a woman can never teach her children anything. So I say all that to say this, 
I view prayer in the same way. The fact that I may be present when my wife prays does not mean that I've somehow forfeited my role as leader in the home. It also doesn't mean that she should have to take over that role, like leading a prayer before a meal, because I'm lazy or because I just am unwilling to do it. I don't believe that's a good option. It's just that it doesn't seem inappropriate to me, even in light of the passages we've discussed about what happens in the assembly. It does not seem inappropriate to me. Now, having said that, you may feel differently. Uh, this is, in fact, the, the actual question was, what are your thoughts? So I have to tell you, these are my thoughts. Uh, but if you feel differently, follow your conscience and convictions. There's nothing wrong with doing it in a different way, but that's just what I believe about that. Now, when you ask the question about a child, I feel similarly, particularly because I have two boys in my home, and there is a role that hopefully they will embrace as they age of being spiritual leaders, both in the church and in their own home someday. And they need practice praying. And family time is a place where there is an appropriate acceptance and also opportunity to teach or guide. And I've got to say, as a parent, I want to know where are my kids' hearts at? And prayer is a window into the heart. I want to hear my kids praying, and I want them to even practice praying for other people. So as a father, I'm concerned about their spiritual development. To me, them leading prayer, especially before a meal, is an opportunity to do that. Now, you may feel differently about that, and you may say no, uh, based on maybe Ephesians 6.4 or based on a construct you have, you don't think that's appropriate. And in that case, you follow your conscience and your convictions about that. But to me, it seems that there is some value in some of these things, uh, whether it's a woman or a child leading prayer. I do not believe that's somehow a usurpation of authority in the home. Uh, that's my judgment. All right, well, that's all I've got. I looked for a three-minute easy question. You guys didn't give me any, so it's your fault. And uh, so, but keep asking questions, keep submitting them to me, and uh, we'll continue the Q&A process. So thank you so much for your attention. We'll be dismissed for our classes at this time.